Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so here's what we're going to do. It's Resurrection Day. We're celebrating Jesus' triumph over sin and death. He was abused, beaten, suffered greatly. He was killed, but that wasn't the end of the story. That's not the whole message. He rose again. And that's the good news of what we're celebrating today. Amen? He rose again. He beat death. He overcame death. Now, the crazy thing is that when it comes to things like war on earth, the main goal of conquering an army is to just make sure that they can't fight anymore, right? All throughout history, the main goal was to put your enemy to death because once death comes, the war is over. But how do you fight an enemy who you can't keep dead? How can the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, overcome a king who won't stay dead? You can't, and that's the point, and that's where our hope lies, and that's why we're rejoicing today, amen? Because our king didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead, and he promises that that's our future too, that we will all, even though we'll taste death, it'll just be like sleeping, we'll be raised to new life just like he was. So last week when we were in Matthew chapter 16, we were reading how Jesus was preparing his disciples for this event. And he, in Matthew 16, 21, he said, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now that's pretty self-explanatory. I don't know how you'd need any interpretation for what that means, right? He taught them, guys, I gotta go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. And three days later, count them. One, two, three. I'm gonna come back from the dead. So what I wanna do today is I want to see the disciples' reaction to that teaching in Matthew 16 on Resurrection Day on Matthew 28. And then we're gonna jump back into our regular scheduled programming of Matthew 17, cool? So let's go to Matthew 28 and we're gonna read. We know the disciples had the teaching. We know that they were told that Jesus was gonna come back from the dead. What was their reaction? How did they react on Sunday morning? Matthew 28 verse one. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, he did exactly what he said he was gonna do. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples (laughs) that he has risen from the dead. Go ahead and just put a pin right there. Because what's happening, what Matthew is telling us, is that even though Jesus told these guys ahead of time what was gonna happen, not a single disciple was at the tomb on the third day. Where was his boys? Not a single one? 
Not a single one of the guys who was told this is going to happen was there. In their place were two women, praise God for the women, who showed up and got the news because their instructions were now to go tell the guys who didn't show up. They knew what was coming. They didn't. The women showed up anyway, and they got to come back and tell the disciples of the good news. And you know what happened when they told? Most of the disciples didn't believe them. Peter ran to the tomb and found it empty. But the rest of the disciples, they didn't believe. So here's the question, excuse me, here's the question we're gonna wrestle with today. What happened to the disciples? Why were the disciples not at the empty tomb on Sunday morning? Well, we get some answers. John 20, 19 tells us that they didn't go to the tomb because they were hiding for fear of the Jews. They didn't show up because they were afraid. They were full of fear. So one of the reasons why they weren't there is because they were afraid of being killed and they didn't want to share in that suffering. That's important. They weren't there because they didn't want to share in the suffering they knew would come their way if they were there. Well, that's John's account, Mark's account, and we've read both of these gospels over the previous years. Mark's account in 16, 14 tells us that their hearts were hard and they did not believe. And when Jesus finally showed up that afternoon, he rebuked them for their lack of faith. So two big reasons why they weren't there. They were afraid and didn't want to share in his sufferings but they also lacked faith. So they were not there because they were afraid of suffering and they lacked faith. That's important because that's the two things we're gonna kind of dance around the entire day today. Now what's interesting is I just said a minute ago is that we were going to wrestle with where the disciples were and then I just told you that the wrestling's over because we know why they weren't there. So if I say we're going to wrestle with what happened to the disciples, I'm not actually saying we're gonna wrestle with what happened to the first century disciples. What I'm saying is we're gonna wrestle with what happened to the disciples today. What has happened to us? What is going on with the, with the disciples? What is going on with the church? What is happening with God's bride? the disciples, what's going on with the void of passion that you feel in so many churches? What is happening with the, the seeming powerlessness within churches, the lack of obedience, the lack of holiness, the lack of just sheer awe of the wonder of God, the, the, the beauty of, of trading in um, what you are most show most affection towards so that your heart is not stirred to the world, but it's actually stirred for the things of the Lord. Where is the desire for his word? Where is the awe and the wonder and the beauty and the moving and the leading and the following of the Holy Spirit in worship? What happened to the disciples? What is happening to the disciples? Well, I'm convinced that the reason why the disciples did not show up to the tomb on Sunday morning is the same reason why you see all the things I just described in church and in our lives today. Because we, as a people of God, the disciples, 
we historically and today do not like the idea of suffering and we lack faith. Got it? Let's dig into those two things in Matthew chapter 17. So let's go back over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, one says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now that word transfigured, there's just not a good English equivalent for it. In Greek, it, it, it's like, like metamorphosis, like he completely changed. Like his appearance, just he didn't even look like the same guy. He completely transformed. This glorified state of the Lord came upon him. He just transformed, he transfigured. And the guy that was standing before Peter, James, and John was not the same guy. It was the same guy, but it just didn't look like the same guy. Okay, it's just... It's hard to kind of get this across, but it would, it would be like just standing there but with your friend, everything's kind of normal, and all of a sudden, just like the brightest light you could possibly imagine just starts shining around them and their entire countenance changes, all right? Verse three, it says, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, so it even, it's getting weirder, okay? So not, now, not only is his entire countenance changed, now some kind of portal between like here and there has now opened up, right? It's like some kind of Marvel movie, and we're all standing here, and they're just like, whoa, and then boom, and then now there's Moses and Elijah standing there, and they're just having a conversation, Right? Like, when you get to heaven, this is top three things you want to watch when you get there. Like, show me the DVD reel of that. I got to see that because I want to watch it. So verse four says, Peter said to him, oh, 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 Lord, it is good that we are here. Because if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because in Peter's mind, man, these are my heroes, all three of them, and they're in the same place. I'm gonna make a tent for all of you because that, as a, as a Hebrew, that's the way we would worship. We just make a little tabernacle for both of you and since you're all on the same playing field, according to my top three, you guys are all awesome. How about we just build a tent right here for all of you guys, right? Not acknowledging that Christ is infinitely superior than Moses and Elijah, but no, from Peter's mind, man, this is the hall of fame. This is great, it couldn't get any better. And it's a good thing I'm here because now I can build the tents for you. Keep talking, I got it. That's what's going through Peter's mind. And when we read this account, I think in John, John tells us that when Peter said this, he didn't know what he was talking about. So clearly, he's like, this is the best thing I got. And, it, and, and that just fell completely short. So at this point, Verse five, it says, he still was speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Whoa, okay. So now we don't just have Jesus transfigured. Now we've got Moses and Elijah. We've got the heavy hitters. They're all standing there right in front. We can see like part of heaven, it's bright. And now we get to hear the voice of the father speak and affirm Jesus as his son. I don't know how to get it better than this. 
right? Pretty great. Pretty, pretty amazing. So from this point, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I'd say that's a proper reaction. Jesus touched them and saying, hey, rise. Guys, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There it is again. Now at this point, you can tell the disciples, they're like, they're not really following. They're not really getting what, why can't we say it? I don't really know. So, so they kind of do what humans typically do. They kind of interject something that's a little bit related to what we're talking about to make you still feel like you're in the conversation. You know what I'm talking about? When you're in the room with like an astrophysicist and they're like spitting out like NASA projections on like how to get to the moon and calculating like really high math. And you're like, yeah, man, I had a telescope when I was nine. (laughs) Stars are cool. Like you have no, you can't even compete in the conversation because it's, they're talking above your head and you're just like, I mean, I got something. I'm still here in the conversation. This is what they do. So they interject and they say, um, verse 10, uh, where are we? Tell no one the vision. Okay, verse 10, it says, the disciples ask, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? What? What does that have to do with anything, guys? Tell no one... Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then they, they said, well, then why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he, and he answers, he's like, oh, that's cute. He answers, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Now this moment is really important for a couple different reasons. Let's kind of run through these, all right? First, the moment, uh, this is just ge- geographical, it doesn't really have a huge implication, but some of you are gonna go home and look at maps because that's the kind of person you are. So when you go and look at a map of Israel, this, this happened historically either on Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. So when you're looking at a map of Israel, it was probably one of those two uh, mountains. Um, and mountains are huge in Matthew's writing and in the lives of Jews because uh, mountains symbolize great moments in the life of Israel. And what I mean by that is uh, you've got Noah's Ark rested on a mountain. Moses, he gives the Ten Commandments. He goes up and spends 40 days with the Lord. He gives the Ten Commandments from a mountain, Mount Sinai, right? Um, Jesus taught the uh, Sermon on the Mount from a mountain. Mountains have a huge um, implication to like not just where we are when this thing is happening, but the magnitude of, of the idea of a mountain. This is a big idea, a big moment, a big thing, and it's happening on an actual big thing, right? So when it comes to the life of the Jew, mountains are a big deal. So on this mountain, this big deal happens where these three disciples show up and it's important to understand why Moses and Elijah showed up because Moses was a symbol for the Jewish people of the law. He was the one who gave the law. The law was kind of central to being uh, a Jew. So Moses being the representation of the law was important. And, but also Elijah, he was kind of like the, um, the all-star when it came to prophets, right? So Jesus standing there having a conversation with the law and the prophets, what do you think they were talking about? How the fulfillment of everything they were doing is finally here. Everything that the law and the prophets pointed to is now having a conversation with God himself in human form. 
all of the pointing towards, all of the preparing the hearts of, it is now here. This is, this is the crossroads in history where the law and the prophets finally meet the Son of God and they have a conversation about everything that they did up to this point finally being fulfilled. All of the work is done because now I'm here. And not only that, you've got the Father affirming. So you've got the law and the prophets affirming Jesus is who he says he is in front of the three disciples. You've got the Father speaking and affirming from heaven. This is my son, listen to him. And this is a wonderful experience. So wonderful that Peter wants to build tents. And he also reflects on this later. If you want to go read 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, he actually references this moment as kind of a turning point, a huge point in his life. It's 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. But after this moment, you'd think, okay, well, great moments, right? We don't want great moments to end. You've, you've had great moments in a worship service. You've had great prayer moments. You're at home kind of studying the word, and you're like, man, this is really rich. I don't want to go to work. I want to keep studying. I just want to get in this. Maybe you've been to like a summer camp or something, or you've kind of been away at some kind of conference, and you've had these divine moments where like it's not something you did. Jesus just showed, just, just decided to show up and just blow his, his presence on you, and you're just like, oh, man, I can feel your presence in, in a tangible way, different than, than just normal life. And I don't want to leave this point. This is what's happening on the mountain, but it's got to end. And so Jesus leads them down the mountain and tells them to keep quiet. And my question is why? I don't really care about Elijah coming first. That's not important to me. It was important to them because they want to kind of understand, okay, well, what's the order? I thought that the prophet Malachi told us that like Elijah had to come first. And Jesus is like, no, he did. He already did. He came in the form of John the Baptist and you guys treated him however you wanted to, poorly. He suffered, and I'm also going to suffer. But for me today, that's not what's important. What's important to me is that they were on this mountain, and then they had to come down, and he tells them, I don't want you talking about this moment until after the resurrection. Why? What is so important about all the things leading up to the resurrection that we can't talk about this amazing thing we just saw until after it? I think it would be super helpful for your followers to know that like, hey, the law and the prophets, they showed up and they gave Jesus a high five. We're good, this is the guy. I heard Jesus, I heard the father speak that Jesus is his son. Like that seems like an important thing for them to share. And Jesus is like, don't say anything. Not until after the resurrection. What is important about the resurrection that they had to keep it silent? I think it's because moments like this, these high moments, these mountaintop moments, really ever only make sense in the light of Easter, in the light of the empty tomb. Here's what I mean. You've got the glory of Jesus on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, but it really only makes sense in the shadow of the shame on the hill of Golgotha. You've got Jesus glorified, and you've got Jesus in his shame. It only makes sense when up on the mountain, his clothes are covered in bright white light, but down here when he's among us, his clothes are stripped off and sold among the soldiers. Up here on the mountain, you've got him flanked by Moses and Elijah, but down here among us, he's flanked by two thieves. When he's up there on the mountain, he's covered in light, but when he's hung on this cross, He's covered in darkness. In fact, darkness covered the whole land on that Good Friday. 
Up on the mountain, Peter is wanting to build tents and tabernacles to worship these guys. And down here in the valley, when Jesus is on the cross, Peter is nowhere to be found. Easter morning, he doesn't even show up until much later. So what is Jesus trying to say when he says, don't tell anybody until after I'm raised from the dead? I think he's trying to get us to understand that a mountain can really only be seen as a mountain when it's surrounded by valleys. You can't see that a mountain is a mountain unless you also see how low the valleys are below it because without valleys, a mountain is just a plain. It's just a big old flat surface because without the going down, there is no going up. You see what I'm getting at? There is a spiritual principle at work when he says you can't talk about this amazing thing until you see the low thing because you won't understand the amazing thing until you share and experience the low thing. Now in this experience, the valley is actually a valley because they're going down the mountain. But what are they going down into? It is actually a valley, but it is also figuratively a valley because what we're about to read in verse 14 is that when they get down there, guess what they don't see? More shining lights and Moses and Elijah and more of the prophets. We don't hear more of the Father's words. What do we see? He gets down in the valley and what do we meet? We meet a man who's got a son who's possessed by a demon and his son is suffering. And he brought his son to the disciples and the disciples can't help. So the valley is I'm coming back down off of the mountain, not because we can't live on mountains, but because we need the valleys to help us understand how amazing the mountains are. But when we come back down in the valley, we're spiritually in a valley because this thing is surrounded by people who are hurting and broken. Now we'll get to that in a minute when we read verse 14, but let's talk for just a second about the idea that a mountain refers to going down into suffering. And he talks about this when he talks about Elijah. He says, I tell you that Elijah's already gone, this is verse 12, and they did not recognize him because they did to him whatever he pleased, and also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus is saying, I can't just stay here in the affirmation of my father and these prophets. I gotta go down and suffer. Why? Because that's what happens to God's people. It happened to all of the prophets. It happened to Elijah. It happened to John the Baptist. It's gotta happen to Jesus. God's People suffer, period, end of story. Now that is not the gospel being sold today. The gospel being sold today is come to Jesus and all your suffering will end. Come to Jesus and you'll have more wealth than you know what to do with. Come to Jesus and you can buy your own airplane. That is not the message of a man who walks down the valley knowing that at the bottom of the valley are men who want to beat him and kill him and put him in a borrowed tomb. So what does that say to us that says that we as his disciples are called to wrestle in sharing with that same suffering? Now, this is where we're wrestling. I told you this is gonna be a tough one. This is what we're wrestling with today, the idea that discipleship means there will be a certain level of suffering on our life. The disciples didn't like this on Easter and that's why they weren't there. We don't like it because we know we're promised to share in it too. We try and push it away. We try to look in scripture where we find, well, where's, where's the verse about blessed blessings, blessed life? 
Can I do a word search on blessing, blessed? Ever done a word search on suffering? I did. The book of 1 Peter mentions suffering, the suffering of the saints, more than any other, Bible, any other book in the New Testament. It references the suffering of the saints 16 times in one book, 1 Peter. Now most of the suffering that he's referencing in 1 Peter is actual pain to the body through persecution. And he's writing to a church who's being persecuted by Rome. We're talking about a nation who would break into the doors, the homes of believers, rip them out of their beds in the middle of the night, put them before a court and tell them you, you have to renounce Jesus. And when they said they wouldn't, they'd feed them to lions or they'd turn them into human candles. This is who he's writing to. This is foreign to us. We don't know what this is like. There are brothers and sisters around the world who know exactly what this is like. That if you say Jesus, that means you don't ever get to see your family again because they don't want any part of of that. That that worshiping Jesus means hiding out in a little uh, underground church because if, if the authorities find you, that's the end. We don't know what that's like. But just because we don't know what that's like and it doesn't happen here doesn't mean it will never happen here and we don't ever will know what it's like. We are promised by the words of Jesus that his followers will suffer. If he suffered, what makes us think that we are above the teacher that we would not suffer? So just because we're in a glorious structure that God has set up, praise God for this country, that we can worship free, does not mean that it will always be this way. Now we should vote and and, and use our rights in a way that we can keep it this way because this is a good thing for us to worship in freedom. It reflects what eternity will look like. But the truth is that we can't live like it's always going to be like this because historically across, the, 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 across all of history and across all of the world, it has not been like this for our brothers and sisters. Now there is a good part and a bad part to this. The bad part is it means suffering is coming our way. Now is this a prophetic statement that I'm saying, hey, suffering is coming our way? Yes, it is, that's exactly what this is. I'm telling you it is coming. It may not show up in your lifetime, but we're getting real close. It's getting real close. Some of you will be called to the mission field and you'll see it. But we're getting very close. Some of your children, your children's children will certainly experience it. You're gonna experience a place where in the public forum, in the school system, the name of Jesus will not be uttered without repercussions. And to think that it won't is narrow-minded because Jesus said it would happen and everything he says will happen, will happen. So, Peter talks 16 times in his book about persecution, actual pain to your body, 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 suffering coming our way to our, to our flesh. That is a thing that we are promised will happen. Has it happened to you yet? Probably not, but we're promised that it may happen but that's not the only suffering he's talking about. Here's another interesting component. Paul in Philippians 3.8 says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
But it doesn't stop there. Now it's a good bumper sticker verse, right? You put it up there, that's good, right? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. You gotta read verses in context because he goes on the end of verse eight and he says, for his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Mm, That's beautiful. And if we go too fast, we're gonna miss it. So let me read it again. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. What is all things? All things. Good stuff, bad stuff. Having children, having a spouse, having a good life, having a solid job, living in security, having a body that's healthy and working. I consider all of that. If if I had to suffer the loss of all of that good stuff and bad stuff, it's okay because I've already counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What is is he saying? Right before this, he lists out all of his credentials before he met Jesus. I was the top of my class. I studied Hebrew better than everybody. I knew all of the guys. I knew all their names. Everyone came to me for information. I was the top dog. All of that was considered gain. So if you're, if you're thinking about kind of a ledger sheet, you've got gains and losses. You've got positive stuff, you've got negative stuff. And in, in Paul's category, in his mind, in the gain category, it is all achievement, money, uh, status, it is wealth, it is education, it is um, g- getting my name up on plaques and having lots of trophies. That is gain. And the loss category is Jesus, his people getting his way. I, I gotta stop him. I gotta stop the spread of Christianity. That was in the lost category. And then he met Jesus and everything changed. The problem is, the reason why a lot of people aren't showing up to the the empty tomb is because when you met Jesus, nothing changed. Because you weren't told that anything had to change. But I'm here to tell you, everything changes when you meet Jesus. Your entire structure for how you value Everything changes when you meet Jesus. Praise God. So what Paul says is, this category that was gain, now I I cross through it and I just write over the top, loss. So my desire to to have a a, a good marriage and a happy family and all these kids, my desire to like live in this wonderful house and, and have all this worldly stuff, all of it, loss. Because the only thing in the gain category now is Jesus. Now, are we saying we, you, you can't aspire to that stuff? Certainly not. There's nothing wrong within your heart wanting, no, oh, Lord, I want to bless you with a family. But what Paul would say is that if Jesus requires you to surrender the, even the good stuff in this world that we would consider profitable, good for us, then you should be willing with joy to say, I will gladly give that up. I will gladly consider that loss because there is nothing greater than Jesus. So let's say that your body doesn't work like it's supposed to. What do you do as a believer? Well, your instructor from the word is to go to your father and ask him to heal your body. Jesus, heal me. Drive this cancer out of my body. Give me my sight. This arm that doesn't work like it used to, fix it. I don't want to live in pain. And if in his grace and his wisdom, he says, 
I love you and I'm going to heal you, then praise Jesus for a miracle. But if in his wisdom, he says to you, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And that desire you have for having a fully functional, healthy, working body, you can gladly just cross off and say, you know what? I will praise you for the answer of not receiving that healing right now because deep down, the only thing I ever really wanted was not a healing, it was you. I told you, this is grown-up stuff. Because most of us are like, ah, that's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. But what Paul is saying is that in addition to the suffering that is promised for believers, Peter says, the the persecution style suffering, there is a suffering that should be in existence in the life of a believer and it is essentially a pain of letting go of this world because you treasure Jesus more. That is suffering loss. I will gladly suffer the loss of not getting my way because I treasure you above my way. I will gladly treasure and suffer the loss of not having this thing that my flesh wants because I want you more. You see in this? This is huge. If you can sink your teeth into this, I promise everything will start changing. And all of a sudden, the, the, the things of this world will start growing strangely dim and they will have less appeal. If you're struggling with regular addiction, this is how you overcome it. You go ahead and you put at the top of that category, loss. That feeling you get when you give yourself to the affections of the world or the addictions of the world, that even, it's a good feeling, but it's momentary. If you can get to a place where you say, no, 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 I don't want that anymore. I'm giving that to you. I'm gonna suffer the loss of that thing because this thing is infinitely better. You're gonna start seeing some freedom that you didn't know was possible. You start doing that with your finances, all of a sudden, you're out of debt. Because this world doesn't have a hook on you. All of a sudden, your, your spiritual life, it starts skyrocketing. You start growing deeper roots and more fruit on your trees because during a worship service, you're not sitting there on your phone going, man, what did, did anybody like my stuff? I didn't get enough likes. Oh man, I should capture this moment. Look, I love you and I understand the desire for you want to capture a moment, but for God's sakes, just live in the moment. Put your phone away. It's amazing the amount of people that I see when you go to like, a, like the Grand Canyon or like big like mountain, when you, you go up to the, the mountains of the Smoky Mountains and people are just standing there with their phones. They're like, man, isn't this wonderful? This is beautiful. I wanted to see my, my folks up in the mountains one time. We were kind of up this, uh, it was just one of the things at the top of the mountain, you kind of like a structure and you kind of walk around, you get to see everything. Man, there was like two people up there FaceTiming. It's beautiful up here. What are you doing? No, 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 you're missing it. You're missing it because your heart wants to be somewhere else. You can't be here. You can't be stirred for this because even though you are here, you're not here. Your heart is somewhere else. That's an issue. That's something disciples can't have. You can't have your heart living somewhere else and your body being here. You follow what I'm saying? There is a suffering. And I'm not saying it's easy. That's why it's suffering. 
Because deep down, you want to be there. You want to be in everything. You want to be in the know. There's a fear of missing out. You don't want to miss. So it is a suffering that you don't get to do that. But I'm telling you, when you make the decision to cross that out and say loss, all of that is loss. Deep down, my flesh wants it, but I'm not going to give my flesh what it wants. Loss because the only gain is Jesus, and I'd rather have him than be in the middle of all of the knowledge. I'd rather have him than have everyone like me. The problem is that everybody wants to follow Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration, but nobody wants to follow Jesus to Golgotha. And Romans 18 says it, it says you can't be glorified with him if you refuse to suffer with him. You're You're not gonna experience the glory if you refuse to experience the suffering. You can't experience resurrection power unless you actually die. Your flesh has to die to experience resurrection power. So, where's the power in the local church? It's absent, because just like the early disciples, we've rejected this understanding of suffering. Suffering in the form of persecution and suffering in the form of losing this world. We don't want anybody telling us we can't have what we want. And so we divorce our discipleship from the theological principles of suffering and we don't know why things aren't working. I don't know why I'm not bearing fruit. I can tell you. You won't like it, but I can tell you. So that's the first one, suffering. Why weren't they there? They were afraid of suffering. Go to verse 14 in Matthew 17 and we'll talk about the last one then we'll close there. Matthew 17, 14, it says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and was kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I could not possibly imagine what it would be like as a father to have a son who who struggles with this. The feeling of powerlessness. I brought him, verse 16, to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, you faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him immediately and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And he said, because of your little faith. Now what's interesting is he says, because of your little faith, but then he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So when he says, because of your little faith, what he's actually saying is because you had no faith. Because little faith is really all you need. You need faith like a mustard seed and then you can move mountains. So the fact that they did not even have little faith means that when he says because of your little faith, he's actually saying because you had no faith. So here's what's happening. Jesus comes down off of the mountain and what do we find? Suffering and sorrow because a man has his son being tortured by the the kingdom of darkness and he brings his, his hurt and his pain to the church, to disciples and what happens? Nothing. Because what does the man find in the kingdom of God? What does he find among the disciples? What does he find in the church? No faith. This is eerily familiar because the father has no faith in the disciples and the disciples have no faith in God. The church, we've got such 
little faith in our God because we have such faith in our systems and our calendars and our checklists. We don't need him because everything's organized and we've handled it. And so when the lost come to us, what do they find? No faith because we don't have faith and so none of the issues are resolved. What's the answer to this? It's the same answer as this, Jesus. The only answer to this is Jesus. These disciples were expected to live by faith. Now, that seems simplistic because what they were supposed to be doing is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus says, you've gotta live by faith. That seems incredibly simplistic, but sometimes the simplest things are the ones that trip us up. And I told you at the beginning of the message. And one of the reasons why the disciples weren't there on Easter morning is because they were afraid of suffering and they lacked faith. And lacking faith is still a huge issue for us today. Lack of faith was the reason why the disciples couldn't help the Father. It was the reason why the Father couldn't experience healing. The lack of faith kept the disciples from being there on Easter morning, and the lack of faith is what keeps us from participating in God's work today. It's the reason why many of you keep hearing about God doing tremendous things from your friends, but not seeing the fingerprints at Him at work in your home or in your life or in your heart. It's like the disciples who are cowering on Easter morning and Mary runs up. You guys are never gonna believe. Jesus rose from the dead, an angel just told me it's the most amazing thing. There was thunder, the, the, the Roman soldiers, they were laying dead because it was crazy. He's alive. I don't believe you. It's the reason why you keep hearing these stories of God at work, but not at work in your heart because there's an issue with faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells that we are people of faith and we're supposed to be walking by faith, not by sight. What that means is we should stop living well-informed, well-read, confident in our ability style lives. Our desire as human beings is to live this life where we are confident in our own strength and in what we do we're confident in this idea that, that we've got it figured out and we don't need outside influence because we've got it. That is the opposite of what it looks like to be a disciple. Now, what you're probably starting to hear me say is you're starting to listen, you're like, okay, well, that, well it sounds to me like I just need to be a little more of a free spirit and I need to stop being so structured. For some of you, that's exactly what it means. But faith, for some of you who are already free spirits, means like you need to tighten up your shoes a little bit because you keep tripping over your own shoelaces. Because you're just convinced, oh, I'm just gonna throw my shoes on, I'm just gonna go through the day and whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. Faith is not just flowing or floating by the seat of your pants. Faith, there is some structure to studying the word and believing what he says and putting that to faith because what faith is essentially is confidence in God. And if you don't know what God said about himself, if you're not disciplined enough to actually read it and know it, then you can't have confidence and faith in him because you don't know it. It is not this thing where those of you who are too straight laced, you just need to loosen up a little bit more. And the, but those of you who are already uh, kind of loose, just you're good. The goal is for all of us to just kind of be a little more. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that from wherever you are, there needs to be a shift because whatever, whatever level of faith you're operating on right now, it is too low. I don't even know what it is, but I can tell you it's too low. 
And the reason why I know this is because for the majority of us, this is the struggle that has always taken place in the life of disciples. This is always our struggle. We don't trust him. When he says something, we don't trust it. This is the reason why the disciples weren't there on Sunday morning. And this is the reason why we struggle in our walk. Because we don't like the idea of having to suffer for our faith and we don't really believe that what he said will happen to us or to our families. Somehow we feel we're exempt and we're not going to be tested. So, I have good news. For those of us who are living with very little or no faith, faith is essentially a simple, I think probably the easiest way to understand it would be like this. If you wanted to take a peek at the sun, it doesn't matter if you had a window as large as this wall or a tiny little crack in the wall. The only thing that matters is, is the window or the crack facing the sun? You following? It doesn't matter how large your faith is, it only matters what direction your faith is pointing. So how do we reconcile as a people living with very low to almost no faith? We don't trust that he says he's going to do what he's gonna do. How do we fix that? We start looking towards him we start peeking, whether through a little crack or a tiny window, at what he said about himself in the word. You turn in repentance away from a life of saying, my way, my way, my way. And you peek through this crack at the word and you read what he says about himself. And when he says things like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You say, I believe it. I believe it so much that I wanna do anything that I need to to empty this wretched heart of stuff that doesn't belong to him and doesn't reflect his kingdom so that I can be pure in heart because I'm promised that when I am, I will see God and there is nothing that I want more. You follow? So how do you fix a faithless life? You get into the word, you stare at his promises, and when you see them, you choose to believe them. Now, Matthew 17, 22, he finishes this. Let's, let's kind of wrap this up with one more mention of the powerful work of Easter, because it is Easter. Verse 22, he says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them one more time, guys, just listen, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And what was their response? They were greatly distressed. This is the reason why they didn't show up. Because when they heard what he said about himself, they ignored the promise at the end. Did, did, did you see what Matthew said? He said, Jesus told us, look guys, they're gonna toss me over into their hands. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna be killed. At that point, they tuned out. La, 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 la. I don't wanna hear it. You're my friend, I want you to die. I don't wanna go down into the valley. I don't wanna suffer. 
And because I don't want that, I don't have the faith to hear what you're saying next, which is the promise. It's the, I'm going to die. But then guys, on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. But they didn't hear that. They were too distressed because of the dying part, the suffering part. So we began today with wrestling with this question. What happened to the disciples? Well, we, they were absent on Easter morning because of the fear and the lack of faith. And I said that the, not much has changed over 2000 years. We're still afraid to suffer loss and we don't like living by faith. So what can be done? Very similar to what I just described when it talks about living by faith. There's only one answer. There's only one way to reconcile the fact that we don't like what Jesus told us what happened to us. We have to repent and turn away from disbelief, turn away from fear, and turn to Jesus. It's time for us to plot a new path down the mountain into the valley of suffering, which will require us to live more by faith we have to make a decision to decide to take faith as a new step every single day, not trusting in our sight or what we see. We have to choose to die daily to experience the glorious power of resurrection. In short, how do we resolve this issue of faithlessness and the fear of suffering? We start turning to Jesus. There's no magical formula. There's no magical prayer you can pray. There's no thing that you can leave and you just start, stop doing this one thing. Man, things in your life are gonna be infinitely better. That's not how relationships work. See, on the mountain of transfiguration, when the men were brought to their knees because they heard the voice of the Lord, when they looked up, what did they see? Jesus, only Jesus. How do we reconcile our fear of Suffering, how do we reconcile our, our lack of faith? We start spending more time staring at Jesus in prayer, in his word, and as we obey what we read, he starts changing our hearts. If you showed up this morning thinking this is some kind of TED talk and I'm gonna give you three points and you're gonna go and practice these and think it would be great, you showed up to the wrong church because it's far harder than that. This is tough grown up stuff that you're gonna be wrestling with for a long time. Because the time to prepare for suffering is right now. It's not when suffering hits. The time to address the fact that you live most of your life without any faith is right now. Not when you need faith. Not when things around you start falling apart and they're out of your control and then you need to start working on faith. No, it's right now. You need to start working on trusting the Lord and walking the walk of suffering that he walked so that you can share in the glorious power of resurrection. And you do that by staring at Jesus. Stop staring at your phones. Stop staring at articles on the internet. Stop staring at what, friend, what boat your friend just bought. Stop staring at a new house that you should purchase. Stop staring at getting deeper into debt because somebody's telling you that this is the perfect time to buy. Stop, stop giving yourself to the affections of the world. Just hit pause, stop watching the news, and stare at Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.